The title of our message today is The Rise of the Antichrist, and we will explain the man of sin today. Just as, the scripture, in, just as in Scripture, we see the long-awaited promised Messiah bless all nations, so the Bible warns us of a predicted villain, both the pretender and the antithesis of the promised Messiah. He is a man who is pure evil. Jesus is pure righteousness. He's the most righteous, the, the most perfect person that has ever lived. The Antichrist is the most wicked and the most flawed person who has ever lived. And there's a few things that we need to get out of the way in order to understand the son of perdition. Satan, the, the dragon in the book of Revelation, wants to be like God. It says that in Isaiah 14, 14, it says, here's Satan speaking, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And so he is putting together what some have called an unholy trinity, the dragon, the antichrist, and the false prophet. Now, the false prophet will also play the role of John the Baptist kind of going before the Antichrist and getting the world prepared to be able to receive what the Antichrist is going to do. But these three are the ones that we're going to meet in chapters 12 and in uh, chapter 13 as well. Now, the Antichrist is referred to in Scripture in four different ways. We could say there are four aspects in which the Bible talks about the Antichrist. And this is why we get confused over the issue of the Antichrist, because we don't understand these aspects. So this is very important. First of all, the Antichrist is synonymous with the last day's world empire or his kingdom. The Bible could be talking about the beast, talking about the empire, or talking about the beast and talking about the individual, or talking about the beast and talking about both of them. In the same way that Hitler was synonymous with the Third Reich or with Nazi Germany. You could talk about the atrocities of Nazi Germany and you're talking about the atrocities of Hitler. If you talk about the atrocities of Hitler, you're talking about the atrocities of the Third Reich. They're, they're all connected together. So the Bible does that. The Bible and the, the Antichrist is going to have great atrocities but in the time that he is ruling. When he gets his reign, he is going to have great atrocities and the Bible refers to his kingdom and him synonymously. And so just understand that and it will save some confusion. What happens is, is that people argue, is he talking about the kingdom or is he talking about the Antichrist? When in reality, he's talking about both of them. They're both being brought up. He's not just talking about one or the other. Number two, the spirit of the Antichrist is already here. The Antichrist may be alive, but the spirit of the Antichrist, you and I run into all of the time. It is the spirit that's in the world. In 1 John 4, 3, it says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ uh, has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. So during John's day, Antichrist was already there. You run into Antichrist when you run into somebody who hates you just because you're a Christian or somebody who wants to tear you down, uh, somebody who wants to attack the things of God, someone who wants to make fun of you and mock you for what you believe. That's the spirit of Antichrist that's already in the world. Number three, there are many antichrists. 
There's not just the Antichrist. When we talk about the Antichrist, we're talking about the son of perdition, the, the, that man at the end of the age, which will be here when Jesus returns and destroys him in the brightness of his coming. But in 1 John 2.18, it says, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Now, some have pointed out that Jesus said, only my Father in heaven knows when I'm going to return, not even the angels of heaven. Now, since Satan is a fallen angel, he doesn't know when God's going to return. Now, I assume he's pretty good at the signs of the times, but also he may be a bit confused. And it could be, and this has been suggested, whether or not it's true, I don't know, but that he has someone waiting in the wing or he is moving in the lives of powerful people, putting them into a position that if the last days comes, he's got somebody ready to possess and to enter into that situation. It, it could explain a lot of people in history. It could explain Hitler. Hitler was so much like the Antichrist. If you were alive during the days of World War II, or maybe you were, I guess, possible? Yeah, 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 but definitely possible, right? If you were alive during those days and you knew the Bible, you might think, if it was happening today, if I was teaching and this was 1942, I would be like, it's the end, folks. Get ready, because Jesus is coming back. Because you've got Hitler attacking the Jews, and we've seen that that happens here, right, in the book of Revelation. That was the last chapter. And so he's got people that are always prepared and always ready. Now, there's not a passage that tells us that, but the thinking is that he doesn't know when it's all going to happen, but God does. God knows exactly who that man is going to be and who that Antichrist will be. So there are many Antichrists. Finally, there will be an ultimate Antichrist. There will be that, that final man that will take the role of the one who stands and tries to be exactly like Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4 says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Somebody had told the Thessalonians that they were in the tribulation period. And so Paul writes them a letter and says, Don't be deceived. That's even a letter from us. For the day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Now, the falling away may be the great apostasy, we may be seeing that in our day with a lot of Christians deconstructing their faith. That may be the great falling away. Some believe it's the gathering of the saints together with the Lord in the air. The word is apostasia. It could also mean gathering so, or, or leaving. So some believe that that's what the great falling away is. But then it says, and the man of sin is revealed. Now, it doesn't say the man of sin has to come first before the tribulation period. It says the man of sin will be revealed. In other words, if you're in the tribulation period, then you're going to know who the Antichrist is. So the people will tell me today, well, we're in, the, we're in the tribulation period. There are people that believe that the tribulation period started in 2017 because of the sign of the woman in the sky. We talked about that in chapter 12 as well. And they have events that they talk about being events in the book of Revelation. The problem is, who's the Antichrist? Don't tell me Biden. Don't tell me Trump. Okay, these are political leader, right? The Antichrist is a political leader, but who fits the bill of the Antichrist? So the falling away will come first and then the Antichrist will be revealed. This is what it says about him. The man of sin, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worshiped 
so that he sets as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So the Antichrist is, is acting like the Messiah. He's acting like Christ incarnate. He's setting as if he's God. He's saying, I am God come to earth. That's what people believe about the Antichrist. That's the ultimate spirit of the Antichrist. Jesus was God incarnate. The Antichrist will try to be like and make people think that he is God incarnate. And there's an event here that we're going to see that really brings people to that place. Now, again, we are in a parathetical section of the book of Revelation. We're just getting information for the players that are involved. The dragon, the Antichrist, and the false prophet in these last two chapters. So we pick up the action, as it were, in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. It says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea. This is a continuation of the battle that had taken place where the, the dragon was trying to devour the, the child who was born by the woman and who turned his attention to the rest of the followers of God, which would be the tribulation saints. So then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns. And on the heads were blasphemous name, a blasphemous name. Now, this is the beast. This is the, the, the last world government. This is the confederation of ten nations around the world that will be run by the Antichrist. And it is the Antichrist. It is both of them spoken of here together, rising up out of the water. Notice how much the beast is like Satan, right? So he has seven heads, ten horns, and uh, uh, seven, seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns. Now let's read Revelation 12, 3 of the description of the dragon. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems on his head. Now, the word diadems is crown. And this drives me crazy because I looked up the words and they're the same. I thought, why did the King James Bible say diadems for the dragon and crowns for the Antichrist? So I thought there's going to be something in the word. And I go back and they're the exact same word, translated diadems in one place and crowns in the other. But they look like one another and they're meant to look like one another. The Antichrist is, is like the devil. He, he's a liar he came to kill, to steal, and destroy. He's been a liar from the beginning. All of these are true about the Antichrist. Everything that people see, everything they fall in love with. And Satan doesn't appear as the dragon. He appears, the Bible says, as an angel of light. So people are deceived by him. Like they're going to be deceived by the Antichrist. They're going to receive the Antichrist and they're going to worship the, be the, the dragon that gives its power to the beast. Now, verse 2. Now, the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. So everything comes from Satan. This man is empowered by the devil. His power, his throne, and his authority. Now, what is this leopard, the bear, and the lion? We get this from the book of Daniel. In Daniel, the lion is the, the empire of Babylon. The bear is the Persian empire. The 
lion, or excuse me, the leopard is the Greek empire. So let me break this down. So the leopard was the Greece empire of Alexander the Great. The bear was the Persian empire of Cyrus the Great. The lion was the Babylonian empire of King Nebuchadnezzar. And the beast, which looks like all of these world powers. What did all these have in common? They were all older world powers. So the beast is both Roman and the revived Roman Empire. So when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and none of, the, none of his wise men could tell him the dream and, and he was like, I'm not going to tell you what my dream is so you can interpret it because we could all make up something to interpret dreams, right? But he goes, you're going to tell me my dream and then interpret it for me. And so Daniel goes and prays and prays that God would reveal to him the dream. And he revealed him the dream. And the, the dream is given. It says in Daniel 2, 38 and 44, you, O king, are the king of kings. For the God of the heaven has given you your power, strength and glory. And wherever children of men dwell and the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, you have, uh, he has given them to your hand and has made you a ruler over all of them. You are as the head of gold. So in his dream, he saw a statue, a head of gold, a breast and arms of silver, a waist of, of, of bra bronze or brass and legs of iron and toes of clay and iron. So Nebuchadnezzar is the lion and he is the head of gold. Then he goes on to say to him, um, let me see where I was at here. You are, you're this head of gold, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Then another kingdom, the third kingdom, the bronze, which shall rule over the earth. So the Medo-Persian empire under Cyrus was inferior to Babylon. And then the bronze kingdom was the Greek kingdom, right? The fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. Yes, so the bronze kingdom is, the, is, uh, is Alexander the Great. And then there shall be as strong as iron. That's the fourth kingdom. And that's Rome. So Rome is in this lion as well. But it's in because Rome is the last kingdom to have ruled the world and will be the revived Roman Empire, they are seen in the Antichrist and in the beast together. So you have Rome in there as well. Now, as you continue to read this, a stone comes up, a rock that is not carved with any hands, and it taps the toes, the ten toes of clay, which represent the coalition of the ten nations around the world with a one-world ruler, and it all crumbles, and a great wind blow, blows them all away, and so it's all blown away. And then the stone grows until the stone is all over the world. And so the stone is Christ who will one day rule all of these world, all this world. So God gave power to Nebuchadnezzar. The power went to an inferior kingdom in Cyrus. It went to Alexander the Great and then to the Romans. And then there was a break. And now there will be a revived one world government. And we hear a lot today about people talking about one world government a one-world currency, uh, a, a one-world, you know, organization that would run everything. Now, there is another interpretation that is becoming more and more common. And I want to mention it because you're going to run into it. I don't think it's true, but we hear a lot of people talking about it today. And that is that the legs of iron are not Rome but they are the Islamic Caliphate. 
So the Islamic, um, so the um, the Islamic caliphate is a caliphate. Uh, a caliphate. Here's my definition that I stole from the internet. A caliphate is an uh, is uh, is an Islamic for. Or maybe I wrote it out myself because this is not good. A caliphate <laughs> is an Islamic form of government in which political and religious leaders unite at the head of state uh, and successors of the prophet Muhammad. So after Muhammad died, you had the first caliphate, which was established in 632. And basically they were head over the Islamic world. They were not head over the world like Babylon was or like Persia was or like Greece was or like Rome was. That's the reason that I don't think that it is the Islamic caliphate. However, when you look at a map today, there are many of the countries that were under Roman rule that are Islamic today. So they'll lay out a map of the area and they'll say, this is really it. And that would make the Antichrist not European, not coming connected to Rome somehow, but it would make him Islamic. And you would have the new world power would be as an Islamic power instead of a Western power. What do all of the other ones have in common? You have Babylon, you have Rome, you have Greece. All of these were over the whole known world and were European. The Roman was European. Now, Africa as well. Um, Constantinople was in the area of Turkey, which was in control by Rome. So I don't think it is the, 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 the Islamic caliphate that are the legs of iron. Now, how am I change my mind? <laughs> well, you know, prophecy is really hard to see when you're looking up on it and, re and you're reading it. When you start to look back or it starts to unfold before you, you can start to get a better picture. So I'll reserve the right to say right now, I don't think it's true. I think it's the Roman Empire and I think the Antichrist is going to rise up out of that. Now in verse three, it says, and I saw one of the heads as if, as if it had been mortally wounded and his dead, deadly wound was healed. So this is like a resurrection. So here people say, this is, this is the kingdom and, and one of the kingdoms has a mortal wound, but the mortal wound is healed. But there's Zechariah eleven seventeen, which talks about the good shepherd and the bad shepherd. So the good shepherd is Christ. And you can read it from verse 12 or so in verse 11. And it, it's very evident that the good shepherd is Christ. But then it says to the worthless shepherd. This is Zechariah eleven seventeen. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. This is the enemy's attempt at a resurrection event. Let me read it again in verse three of Revelation 13. And I saw one of the heads as if it had been mortally wounded and the deadly wound was healed. So he is mortally wounded. That doesn't look like he dies, but he has a wound that he's gonna die from. And everybody knows that. And then the mortal wound is healed. Now, when this happens, it goes on to say, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So when they see the mortal wound and the mortal wound being healed, now the world is all in. 
Now, we're not talking about tribulation saints. We're not talking about people who are Christians because they're already now beginning to feel the heat. But the world is following him. So they worship the dragon, which is what Satan wanted. Remember, Satan said, all the kingdoms of the world I'll give you to Jesus if you bow down and worship me. And he wanted to be like the most high God who is worshiped. And so when they see this mortal wound healed, which is this copycat of the resurrection, then they worship the dragon who gave the authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Now, we read this over and over again. He was given authority. God is allowing him to do it. He's allowing the devil to establish this last world empire. He's allowing the enemy to rule. He's allowing them to sway people. And people will ask, well, why would God allow him to do it? Because God's still giving people a choice. You can serve God or you can serve yourself. You can serve the world. But in their day, there will be a man who is so compelling that you can either serve God by believing in him and sacrificing, denying yourself and maybe even being martyred, or you can live for this man that has a draw. So there's this draw that is there, but there will be people who will go, I'm not following him. I'm going to follow Christ. They, there will be a mark that will be given that no one can buy or sell. It means you can't make money. If you can't sell things, you can't make money. If you can't buy things, then you can't eat. So this is, th these scales that are there are so that God can provide a way for people to stand fast and true, even in the worst of times. So it was given him a mouth to speak great blasphemies. And this is something else that we learn in Daniel about the Antichrist. He's a great speaker. He wins the hearts of all people, which is why I know it's not Joe Biden. Sorry to throw that in there. But we're, you know, we're just talking truth, all right? So he's not a great speaker. I don't think even people who like him would say he's a great speaker. Um, he's, uh, but he, this guy is. Hitler was. Hitler had a way to get a crowd going. He would start off very soft and then he would increase and he would get more fervor. And as he went, people got more excited. People started interacting. By the time he was at the end of his speeches, people would be screaming Heil Hitler by the time he was at the end of it. That's the kind of thing this Antichrist does. He's given a great mouth and he speaks great blasphemies with it for three and a half years. It says, then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So this is the abomination of desolation. This is when now Israel, this is, this is how the dragon is attacking the, the woman who has been taken off into the wilderness and who's being protected in Revelation chapter 12. And so the blasphemy is against God and against his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. It was granted for him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So you remember when he couldn't get to Israel because God took him into the wilderness on two wings of an eagle and the dragon opened his mouth and sent a flood to destroy them, but the ground opened up and stopped the flood from destroying them. So the dragon went to go make warfare with the other offspring for those who trust in Christ. Now it's given, and, and notice this verse here. It was granted to him 
to make war with the saints to overcome them. The Antichrist has the ability to overcome Christians. This is one of the reasons that we, as the church, will not be in the tribulation period. It is God's wrath, and we have not been appointed to the time of God's wrath. We will be caught up and meet the Lord in the air, and we will forever be with the Lord. It's, um, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning this, that we are not to mourn like others who have no hope that we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We're not to be ignorant of it. A lot of the world is ignorant of it today and they deny it. This is why Revelation 3.10 cannot mean to keep you through the tribulation. Let me read Revelation 3.10 to you. This is through the faithful church. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So God's promise to the faithful church is you are not earth dwellers. This is coming to those who dwell on the earth and I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. The hour of trial is the tribulation period. There you're going to be kept from the hour of trial. Now people will say, well, there, there is no catching up. God's not going to protect his church. Instead, he's going to allow them to go through it and he's going to protect them through it. That if, if that's what it means, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you through the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth, then in verse 6 or 7, God has failed. Because it says, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So the saints that are there, the, what we call the tribulation saints, the people that came to Christ after the beginning of the tribulation period and the church was taken up to meet the Lord in the air, then these tribulation saints are going to give their lives for their faith. And the Antichrist is going to overcome them. He is given the power to overcome them. No wonder Jesus said, after talking about in Luke 21, after talking about the tribulation period, no wonder he said, you watch and pray that you would be counted worthy to escape all of these things that are going to come to pass and stand before the Son of Man or escape all of these things that are going to come to pass to test those who dwell on the earth. It's the same kind of language that we get in Revelation 3.10, testing those who are on the earth. So you pray now that you would be counted worthy to escape these things. So if he doesn't mean to escape the things of the tribulation period, what does he mean? What can be the application? people will often attack the idea that God is going to take his church out before the tribulation period by saying it's a novel idea. It's a new idea. It's only been around since uh, Darby in 1830 or so and that the church before that didn't believe in it, that the church didn't talk about it. But that's just not true. That is a myth. And a lot of the people who will say it should know better. They can know better. They have at least the resources to be able to see whether or not anyone in church history taught it. The early church, including the Didache, do you remember what that is? The Didache was a document that went around the early church that helped them to be able to, to interact with traveling preachers. And in the Didache, it says that Jesus Christ could come back at any moment. The any moment return of Christ is one of the strongest arguments for God catching us away because I don't we don't have to be in the tribulation period for him to take us away. 
if you don't believe, if you believe that the catching up of the saints is going to happen at the end of the tribulation period, then you're looking for the Antichrist. You're not looking for Jesus to return at any moment. It takes that away. If you believe it's in the middle, then you aren't looking for the, the Messiah. You're not looking, your eyes aren't on the skies. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You're looking for the Antichrist to come before the Messiah can ever come. So the early church taught, and all over the place, by the way, all the different writers, that Jesus could come back at any moment. Also, Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, wrote about being saved from the time of trouble that was going to come upon the earth. That as Christians, they were going to be taken out of it. So he wrote about it. So here we have a guy just two generations away from John himself, who saw Jesus, who's writing in this, in this way. And then throughout all of church history, there were different church fathers that spoke of it. To be sure, by the time we get to the fifth, fourth and fifth century, the church is amillennial. They are not premillennial, they are amillennial. Amillennial is that things are just gonna kind of go along until Jesus Christ returns. And there were a lot of, a lot of things the church believed leading up to the Reformation that were wrong. That's why there was a need for a Reformation. So if the church believed in three and 400 in amillennialism with only a few people talking about premillennialism, that's that Jesus comes back before the millennium. So if, and they, they believe in indulgences and they believe in all kinds of other things. We're not gonna say that we put any weight on those things that they believed in the third, fourth and fifth century because the Reformation hadn't happened yet. The Reformation had to happen to come in and have all these things change. Now, coming out of the Reformation, they kept all millennialism. But that's when it began to pick up, right at the Reformation. People began to write more about Jesus returning for his church before the tribulation period. And it became more and more. And there were a lot of people who wrote about it before Darby. And if you've ever heard that there was a demon-possessed girl that gave Darby that information, that's a myth. You can go online and you can read, I think it's Mary McDonald, and you can read her actual uh, prophecy and it has nothing to do with the pre-tribulation rapture. If anything, it's opposite, which when I was talking to David Guzik about it, uh, who's a Calvary pastor, and David Guzik said to me, so the demon-possessed girl's on their team, not on our team? Because they always want to say that he got the information from her, but there's nothing in there about it. Now, Darby did popularize it. It did come from his teaching, which went into the Schofield Bible and then the Schofield Bible taught it and then it made its way into Protestantism, evangelicalism. It did popularize it. But popularizing it is not the same as coming up with it. Popularizing it is not the same as saying that was the source and that there was never the source in all of history. I just want to bring that up because I just, I hear people do this all the time. They'll say, you know, there's no such thing as a rapture. It was a thing with Darby and none of the church fathers taught it. First of all, saying none of the church fathers taught it is like saying, it's, a, it's an argument from silence to some degree because have you sat down and really looked over all of the church fathers? There are, there are portions of the church fathers' writings that are still being discovered today it's like archaeology. You don't know what you're going to find. And so we're, we're having all kinds of discoveries. And there are some, now, some things coming out that were written in Latin now 
that are revealing again, that they taught the pre-tribulation rapture, that the church was going to be gathered up before the tribulation period. So you just can't say, nobody talked about it before 1800, so it's not true. It's a novel idea. It's a new idea, so it's not true. It's an old idea. It's a historical idea that was lost in the all-millennialism and a lot of other things that were lost that had to be restored through the Reformation. That's what the Reformation was all about. They just didn't restore eschatology. Huh, am I running out of time now? All right. So this can't be true because the Antichrist overcomes the saints. And then it says, and authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is the ruler of the world. He is the one world ruler. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him because he sets himself up as God whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. So there's a, there's a book of life. And you as a Christian, your name is in the book of life. And if your name's not in the book of life, then you're going to worship the Antichrist. So it's just one or the other. Now, some will say the Lamb's book of life means that God chose people before the foundations of the world to be saved or lost. That God unilaterally chose people to be graced and you can't resist the grace or unilaterally chose you to be damned and you can't resist being damned or you can't change that. But God has foreknowledge. And if God knows that you would follow him, he can write your name from before the foundations of the world. Now, this is another area that's mocked. It's funny to me that someone could mock something like the foreknowledge of God. Does God know what's going to happen? And by the way, there are those who hang on to the idea of irresistible grace and limited atonement so much that they believe that God doesn't have foreknowledge. They'll deny the foreknowledge of God. So they'll say things like, God looked down the long tunnel of time and he saw that you were going to give your life to Christ. And so he came back through the tunnel and he wrote your name down in the land. So they're mocking, right? Well, that's not how we thought it could happen at all. We don't think God was up in heaven looking down the long tunnel of time. Yeah, what's Robert gonna, yeah. 14-year-old Robert gave, no, yes, he did. He gave, he gave his life. I'm writing his name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. To God, time is happening now. To God, he knows He's not looking down any tunnel. You mock it all you want, mock, but you're not mocking. You're really not mocking the belief that we have a genuine choice, that God has given us free will, true free will, and we can either follow him or not. So that if you are lost here today, you can follow Christ. There are some Christians who believe that you can't, that if you're lost and God hasn't chosen you, you can't be saved. Now, God will choose you and you will choose him, but God, there are people that God chooses who don't choose him back. But everyone who comes to Christ will be drawn to God. God draws a lot of people that don't come to him. Nevertheless, God's foreknowledge is God's foreknowledge. Mock it all you want. And God knows who are his because he knows. He knows everything before it happens. He knows the future. And so whom God foreknew, he also predestined. God knew that you would believe by faith. And so he wrote your name down in the Lamb's book of life. And my name has been written there since before the foundations of the world, which is kind of an exciting thing. Your name as a believer has been written there since before the foundations of the world because your God knows you so well. So it says that anybody whose name was written in the book would worship the beast 
And then he says this, and this is wrapping it up. This is the application. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads, who, who, who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. He's saying God's going to judge people for what they do. And God's judgment will be weighted to what they did. He who leads into captivity will be taken into captivity. He who kills with the sword will be killed with the sword. God's judgment is fair. Jesus told a parable where he talked about people being in hell and some being beaten with few stripes and some being beaten with many stripes. Not everyone is going to be treated the same in all of eternity. Before we get out of the book of Revelation, we are gonna have a teaching on hell. The long promised teaching on hell we're gonna finally have here in the book of, of Revelation. And we're gonna talk about what the Bible says it is. But it's gonna be fair. And he's not gonna treat everybody the same. And again, I think, I think people have lent themselves to this idea that everybody's gonna be tormented in hell the same. That God's gonna fillet your flesh for all of eternity. That God's gonna sizzle you in a fire for all of eternity. There is a difference between torture and torment. And, and we'll talk about what those differences are. And the torment is not the same for everyone. It's more of a Dante's Inferno kind of a thing. And because they, there's no nuance of scripture in the teachings on hell, then people end up maligning God. I can't follow a God who would send people to hell because we haven't looked at really what the Bible says about hell. It's more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it is for the city of Capernaum and for Corazon. So the judgments cannot be the same. And who are those who are beaten with few stripes? And I had somebody tell me, when you say that you might go to hell and only be beaten with a few stripes, you're giving people the desire to go to hell. I don't think I am. I, I don't think if anybody really thinks it through, you know what, I'm gonna go to hell and just be beaten with a few stripes, I'm gonna go ahead and do that. Because the Bible doesn't say you're partying in hell either, right? People are like, I'll part. I'd rather party in hell than you know, float on a cloud in heaven. Well, that's not what's gonna happen. There's a lot of differences there. But God, his judgment will be fair. Now, three things in closing. Christ will be the final and the greatest world leader, not the Antichrist. The rock will tap it on the toe, the statue, the statue will collapse and Jesus will rule the world for a thousand years. He will keep all of his promises to Israel, which is what it's about, so that he can rule and reign on the throne of David in Jerusalem as he said he would. These were not metaphors. They were literal. They weren't switched from Israel and given to the church. They are promises he made to Israel and he will be the final and greatest world leader, not the Antichrist. Number two, this is the rise of the Antichrist. We will see the demise of the Antichrist later. We see his rise now. When we end this section, it's like he's in, in his, his victory lap. He's being worshiped as God himself. He's overcoming the saints. But God gives a warning. He who has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captives will be led into captivity. He's going to be judged. Number three, God will judge all people fairly. There will be a balance 
of sin and punishment. That is a weighted balance. Now, it is possible that we don't think sin is as bad or we don't understand that sin is as bad as sin is. And I'm, I'm going to say that it's not just possible. I'm going to say probably true for all of us. We just don't think because we're like the frog in the pot of warming water. And so we might think, well, then I'm in pretty good shape because I haven't been that bad. So I'm not going to worry too much about it. The weight might be different than what you think. You might find out that sin is much worse than what man thinks it is and that there may be a greater judgment that goes along with it. It will be fair. God will be just in what he does. He cannot be unjust. And I'm not saying that, saying that God did it, so it must be fair. That's not what I'm saying. That's not my argument. My argument is that God will be fair. In the end, if you don't follow him and you don't serve him and you end up standing before him, he's going to be fair. But search your heart. Is there sin in your life? Have you been self-seeking? Have you sought your, yourself have you over what you should be doing for other people? Can you honestly say, I can stand before God and I'm not worried about it? I've heard people say that and then I go, well, you really don't have an understanding of what sin is or how bad sin is, but it will be fair. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you that we see here in this chapter the final world kingdom, the final world empire. Thank you that you speak to us about what's going to take place and that we can trust in you that if, well, well, our eyes are on the skies, Lord. We're looking for you like the early church that spoke of Christ coming back at any moment and, and used the word Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So, Lord, we want to regain that word and we want to look to the skies and we are looking for you coming back at any moment because you said to be ready. You're coming back at a time that we don't expect it. It can't be in the tribulation period because we would expect it. But you're coming back for us at a time when we don't expect it. When things are going on in the world like normal, you're going to return for your church. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would be ready. And if there's anything we've got to get out of our lives, that we would get it out of the way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.